Hi everyone, welcome to the Thriving on Purpose podcast. Today we're going to do things differently. We're going to be interviewing J. Lauren Norris. And J. Lauren Norris is a founding partner and certified John Maxwell leadership coach, experienced marketing communication strategist, trainer, speaker, and podcaster. His podcast is called The Leading Leaders Podcast. He's also the TV host of Meet the Messenger TV, Tell It Like It Is TV, Transforming Grace TV, which is a Christian TV show that covers relationship topics and addiction. J. Lauren Norris is also a Toastmasters International World Champion of Public Speaking semi-finalist. And you can learn more about J. Lauren Norris at jlaurennorris.com. Welcome to the Thriving on Purpose podcast, hosted by certified coaches Elizabeth and Sebastian Richard. Elizabeth is a Christian life and leadership coach, branding consultant, and busy mompreneur. Sebastian is a Christian speaker, Bible teacher, author, and leadership expert. Together, they help today's committed believers to dig deeper in their knowledge and walk with God in order for them to grow and climb higher in life and leadership. If you want to dig even deeper, make sure to visit thrivingonpurpose.com for more free resources and content. So today, uh, uh, Lauren, we want to talk to you about the Law of Attraction quantum physics, and the money mindset shift that it took you to become successful. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on the show. Awesome. Thanks for accepting our invitation. So let's dig deeper. So our audience doesn't know much about you. Would you please tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I grew up uh, the only son of a single mom. She was divorced when I was about four and widowed when I, before my 10th birthday. And so I grew up in a lot of those formative years uh, on food stamps and potato soup. My mom was the janitor in the middle school where I attended school and was still in that role by the time I made it to the Air Force. So we grew up a lot with the, the mindset, the rich get richer, the poor go broke, and it's the richest fault. And so I grew up with a lot of, uh, a lot of those people who live on the other side of the tracks, on the other side of town, uh, the other half lives, and they were completely different from us. Wow. So, yeah, so you didn't have a, an easy childhood. It, it was definitely a learning uh, expedition, if you will, coming up, trying to figure out what it means to be a man, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a provider. Wow. Uh, those were not things that were easily caught from the environment that I grew up in. Well, I can definitely relate to that. I can definitely relate. And so how did, um, was your mom a Christian? How did you come to know Christ? But, you know, we grew up in an environment uh, being in central Texas, uh, what they call the, the heart of the Bible Belt, the buckle of the Bible Belt, if you will. You know, I, I still live within uh, three hours of where I grew up. And in this area, there's probably more churches per capita than there are Walmarts. Wow. And so the, the word Christian in that aspect basically means I was born here. Therefore, I presume that I am. And the challenge for a lot of people is there's not a lot of deep discipleship. There's not a lot of uh, true understanding of what the Word of God says or, or how to live it out. But 
I knew. I was a Christian all growing up. I remember uh, Madison Avenue Baptist Church. My first confession of faith was I was about nine years old, and I pushed the preacher off the platform, and I said, one of these days I'm going to take your place. And he kind of laughed, like, <laughs> yeah, and you'll be a rocket scientist and a fireman, and God knows what else between now and then. And so, yeah, I, I guess that's when I met Christ the first time. But there, it really, for lack of a better term, really took uh, in basic training. And on day nine, I'd been made dorm chief. We had a, a we were like the bad news bears in basic training. We were the worst bunch of misfit you've ever seen. Everybody was crying. Everybody was fighting. Everybody was bickering and arguing. And we had two drill sergeants who were both female. So when the lights went out, they had to leave the building. So at dark, it was just us. And there was nobody in control, nobody in charge. On day nine, they made me in charge. And I was like, why do I have this pressure? I had called my girlfriend that day and her grandmother broke up for her and said, don't ever call this house again. And so I'm devastated. I'm alone. I'm under pressure. I'm in basic training. I'm falling apart. Mm. And I started writing this letter to my girlfriend and it turned into a poem. So I got mad. I wadded up three away. Did it again. Well, the third one. I pulled them all out. I laid these wadded pieces of paper out and I realized the last line of all three of them said exactly the same thing. I need someone that no matter how hard I lean, they will never turn their back on me. Mm-hmm. And then I remembered that when I gave my life to Christ at nine, what the old guy said was, if you need a best friend who will sit closer than a brother, and I had neither a best friend nor a brother, come up here and meet my best friend, Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I did. And so in that moment when I said, I need someone to lean on, that no matter how hard I lean, they'll never turn their back on me. My high school girlfriend had broken up with me. Now this new girlfriend broke up with me before I could even get into basic training. I'm in basic training. My life's falling apart. I am nobody. Mm. And I see this epiphany of Jesus confidently, quietly leaning against the door, arms crossed. And he just kind of shook his head softly. He said, I never turned my back on you. You turned your back on me. But I'm here when you're ready to come back. And so I stood up and I turned around to that that group of men and I said, look, I'm your dorm chief. I have no idea what that means, but I will be the best leader for you that I can be. And I know that you're all fighting and crying and broken and hurting for the exact same reason. So let me pray for you. And I had no idea what I was doing, but I I led (laughs) them all in the Lord's Prayer. And there was a cold chill that swept through that room. 90 degrees in October in Texas and every man pulled their chin, their blankets up to their chin with cold chills. And I I realized at that moment that there was a different destiny for my life. Mm. Mm. That's powerful. Well, there was no turning back from that point, huh? No, there was a lot of wandering and multiplicity within my own heart, my own head, but uh, not a lot of turning back, no. Mm. Praise God. And then you did uh, quite a journey in your life. How did you become uh, a coach and speaker? How did did that take place? Uh, being that I was searching, I remember uh, the number of times that I cried out, going, God, I just want somebody in my life mm-hmm. who will challenge me to be the man that I'm supposed to be, who will be a mentor to me, who will, who will pull me into the deep things of God, and, and I couldn't find one. Mm-hmm. I mean, I looked, and I looked, and I looked. I begged. I went to guys like a little kid looking for, for chocolate. Give me mentorship. Give me leadership. And, and it wasn't there. And I picked up three books between about 19 and 22 or 23 years old, um, three books that I honestly just stumbled across. One of those was John Eldridge, Wild at Heart. Oh, yeah. Another one of those was uh, Becoming a Man of Influence, or Becoming a Person Influenced by John Maxwell. And the third was Bringing Up Boys by James Dobson. 
And I read those within about a year of each other. And the dramatic paradigm shift in my life that took place when John Maxwell basically, uh, you know, through that book, boxed my ears and said, listen, leadership isn't about power. It's not about control. It's not about authority. It's about influence. Mm -hmm. And if you become the kind of person that other people seek to be influenced by, you will always be a leader. John Eldridge said, don't forget that there's a reason you were made the way you are. You have a purpose in your life. You, you're designed for something. And there's a big difference between a snow shovel and a butter, a butter knife. And trying to use one for the other's purpose simply isn't going to work. And bringing up boys said, you know, you've got to learn that to be a man, you've got to find a man to model. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, let me fast forward almost 25 years, Christmas of 2016. I was working for a television network at the time. Um, we had a big house, seven bedrooms, three and a half bath. And my dad came and spent Christmas day, Christmas evening with us for the first time in 44 years. I hadn't seen him since I was four or five years old uh, in a Christmas environment. We, we had times together, but not around a holiday. And so he's in the home. There are probably 23 of us, including all of my kids and, and their significant others. And, and we now have eight grandkids. And at the end of the night, I walked him out to the car and he looked at me and he said, son, I, I don't know how you did it. How did you become a dad? Because I know I didn't teach you how to dad. I wasn't around. And my dad didn't, didn't even know who his was. So, yeah. so how did you do this? And I said, you know what? My heavenly father stepped in to become the man to mentor me when there wasn't a man in my life to mentor me. And so that's how I am, who I am, from God's divine intervention, the men that he said into my life, the books that I've read, the people he's turned me on to. Absolutely. That, that's awesome. I, I love your <clears throat> your testimony. Uh, it resonates a lot with me because I, I didn't have much of a father growing up either. And I have a very, very similar uh, path as you, uh, books kind of became my mentors because I was seeking for that male influence, male leadership. So I can totally, totally relate with what you just said. So it's really awesome. I, I had seen John speak at our church. I've seen John Nashville come and speak at our church. I, I've read different books. I've watched a lot of YouTube videos. And when the invitation to be a part of the team uh, came up, I'd, I'd already you know, joined Toastmasters. I've been coaching the John the uh, Dale Carnegie program for almost five years. Okay. Uh, I've been around a lot of different uh, discipleship and, and men's roles, but I just you see guys who are really willing to be vulnerable and transparent and pour into you. And the John Maxwell thing was a significant investment for me, but when I looked at all the other people that I could pay to be a coach or pay to be a mentor or pay them to speak into my life, I couldn't find anybody who's ideals and values and relationships lined up with what I wanted to become enough to say that's somebody that I want to follow that I that I want to emulate in my life um, to the magnitude that John fit that bill oh yeah I totally agree I mean it was the same for me when uh, when we decided when I decided to join the John Maxwell team I mean Liz followed uh, a few months later but I was looking for a, a training platform to become a speaker and uh, to learn leadership and all the personal growth and all that. And uh, n- no platform really resonated with me. I-, I mean, to the point where I would be willing to invest a lot of money in it. But when I saw the ad for the John Maxwell team, uh, I knew that that was the guy. I told Elizabeth right away. I said, hey, Elizabeth, I'm going to join the John Maxwell team. <laughs> he actually came. Yeah, his computer was downstairs and he came 
running upstairs. He said, I found my coach. I found my coach. He <laughs> <laughs> was so excited. So we, we fully understand. And, um, you know, I, I've, uh, I did have a present father, but there were a lot of, uh, issues there and a lot of things missing in my life and for me John has been a a, a real uh, Christian father that's mentored me too uh, through his teaching so it's just wonderful to see what an impact John has had on our lives and how we in turn go and impact others and help others in their leadership it's amazing so I want to talk yeah, I want to talk to you about your mindset because I heard um, an interview with you uh, Another past interview you did, and you were talking about uh, your how you grew up and all that. And so I'm imagining that your uh, mindset towards money was not the greatest. Um, so how did that shift for you? How did that change? You know, one of the things that, <clears throat> that John Maxwell, Charlie Tremendous, Dale Carnegie, the list goes on and on of people who will tell you, you will become like the five people that you hang out with. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> But the reality of that truth is so powerful at every level. Uh, we've heard the illustrations relationally over and over and over again uh, about the, the monkeys and the you know being electrocuted or shot with cold water, about the crabs in a barrel you know, yeah. pulling each other down and not allowing others to get away and, and into freedom and success. And yet we forget sometimes that the biggest immediate influences on the way we think about money, the way we think about others, the way we think about responsibility in life, the way we take authority or don't in our life, the way we allow ourselves to be victimized or at least to maintain a victim mindset. The five people we often hang out with are the ones we're born with. Right. Yeah. And the level of influence that is so profound, you know, that the rich get richer, the poor go broke was so ingrained in my head. You know, when I, when I left home, I'd always been a hustler. I had my first entrepreneurial job mowing yards at seven years old. Oh, yeah. I was yeah. making more money than my mom before I was 10. Wow. Um, I was working a job before it was legal for me to work a job, sacking groceries at the local grocery store at 13. By 14, I had my own keys to the, to the family house, my own keys to the family car, and I came and went as I pleased. I had no curfew, but I had jobs. I had work to do. I was laying carpets and hauling hay and driving a farm truck and moving tractors from one field to the next 25 miles away before I had a driver's license. Wow. So I, I've always had that side hustle. I've always had that ability, that tenacity, that work ethic to get out there and just go get it. Okay. But what I never had was the ability to comprehend that. And I love the way Dr. Randy Weiss told me, he said, you know, leave the richest man at Babylon. And what you're going to find is there's a difference between working for money and making your money work for you. Hmm. If that dollar leaves your pocket and doesn't come back with three friends, that dollar fails you. And I'm like, hold up, wait a minute. <laughs> That's a whole new philosophy. That's a whole new worldview. And so I have surrounded myself with people that theologically I may not agree with. The doctor, uh, Laura Langmeyer is one of those. And I'm sitting here looking at three of her books on my shelf. The uh, Growth to Fast, Fast, to Fast Cash, The Millionaire Maker, and Yes Energy. Now, Yes Energy is all about the quantum physics law of attraction. She was a star in the, in the secret, the movie, and all that kind of stuff. And I, I listen to what she has to say about that stuff, and I'm like, eh, you know, some of that runs afoul, in my opinion, in my understanding of the Bible. Okay. And yet, she has something I don't have, and that is a seven-figure bank account. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, what gives? She's not a criminal. 
She hasn't killed anybody. She's not treating <laughs> right, So how is it that she lives a good life as a single mom under 40 and a millionaire? How did that happen? Yes. What did she do differently than what I did between 25 and 40 to become a millionaire? What is it that she sees in money that I don't see? And so I pay her as a coach in my life. And I've told her, you, you may have seen the interview with her. I said, straight up, you know, if we go down all of our beliefs, 60-40, probably 60% we agree on, 40% we may never see eye to eye on. Okay. But in that 60%, there's something you know that I don't know and I need to know. Amen. And I'm going to pursue that until I get my hands on it. And I think a lot of the mindset, you know, it's real easy to have that victimhood mindset and go, the reason you don't have it is because so-and-so does. The reason you'll never get is because so-and-so did. And because so-and-so has such-and-such, such, you never will have it. Yeah. And there's something wrong with that mindset. And I think it's, frankly, I think it's demonic. But it, it's a way that, from the days of Cain and Abel until today, the same challenge exists. And that is, we've got to figure out what it is between us and our relationship with God that pleases God in our sacrifices, in our obedience, in our calling, in our surrender. Mm-hmm. And then we've got to live that out. And I think a lot of people miss that altogether. They want to blame everybody else for their failure and their lack of success, and yet they continue to live in the same five people. They can continue to live in the same environment. They don't challenge their mindset. When I got the job at Verizon as a salesperson, I had had success in sales in other places, you know, walking and popping a contract of $10,000, $20,000 and walking out with a healthy commission. I've never been, you know, in a place where in a sales job that I couldn't make money at it. I was at Verizon the first 10 days. I was 250% the budget. I had a $10,000 true up check coming. But when I reached the place where I was right on the border of that six figures, my internal messaging hmm. was self-sabotage because I still believed that the rich get richer, the poor go broke, and that's the richest fault. Why in the world would I want to be the rich causing the, wor- the world to go broke? If I cross that six-figure who else is starving because I did how much money am I taking out of the kitty that isn't there left to go around? Okay. And there's, as I understand it now, there's a, there's a fundamental flaw with that concept. And yet it drives a lot of people to do or not do what they could do. Yeah. We, we call it uh, scarcity mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. And, and as to, uh, creating, um, having a mentor relationship with someone you only agree with 60% of what they say, that's still good. I often often tell our, our audience to chew the grass and spit out the hay. It's, I mean, there's not, I don't think there's one human being on earth I agree with 100%. Well, and I think we, we miss a lot of, uh, opportunity. I, I heard, and, and I'm, I'm sure within this podcast realm, there's some There's some uh, specific names. I I want to be cautious about specific names. But I heard a specific individual saying, uh, I've been chastised for people that I've surrounded myself with because their worldview is different than mine is, obviously. And to the degree that they have well-known platforms and I have a well-known platform and mine is very clear and theirs are very clear and they are not the same. Hmm. And he said, "I've, I've been given a hard time about that, but understand that first and foremost, making money is not my role. First and foremost, influence for the kingdom of God and leading as many lives into heaven as I possibly can. That is my goal. And because that is true, I will allow myself 
to be in the environment of the tax collectors and the centers and those whose platform is not the same as mine. Because if I can have an opportunity to influence them, it's worth the investment. Mm. And I'm solid enough on my own ground that I don't have to worry about that. I believe there are relationships that, that we have the opportunity to participate in where 60-40 would be generous. <laughs> it's more like 30-70 you know, and you're like, whoa. It was, but that would have been the case with the woman who was using her hair to clean Jesus' feet. I mean, they would have not been uh, cohorts to hang out with on a regular basis. They would not be you know, collaborative in their work together. But the influence and the opportunity to love her right where she was, the woman at the well, I mean, Peter, for heaven's sake, these are people that Jesus said, I'm going to step into your world. I'm going to love you in your world. I'm going to understand you, and I'm going to give truth to you right where you are. And I think when we silo ourselves and say, well, I only want to hear from people who already agree with me, we're in a useless echo chamber, in my opinion. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. We have to be able to entertain thoughts that we've never thought before in order to change our reality. And I think, Absolutely. and I know you've worked with a lot of pastors and uh, a lot of people in the the Christian uh, sphere. And um, I don't know if you probably noticed the same thing I have. I've spoken to a lot of missionaries and a lot of pastors, and I think there's like some kind of a guilt there that it's like they they believe that it's wrong to make money or to you know to uh, ask for more money or to, you know, produce books, to sell their own books, or their own knowledge to make money. Um, there seems to be like, um, you know, it's sort of like they believe like they're not in faith, because they're, they're trusting in, you know, man-made system to, to build wealth. And I think, you know, in the John Maxwell team, that was a real uh, refresher for me, because Um, you know, we were taught that it was okay to make money and, um, you know, that we could have more influence and reach a lot more people with money. And that wasn't sinful. And when you go in the church, it's the opposite. Like a lot of Christians think that, oh, you're not in faith because now you're wanting to do your own actions to make money to uh, propel your ministry uh, instead of praying and praying and waiting for God to show up in some mir miraculous way. I don't know if you've seen similar things. Absolutely. And, and I, let me say a couple of things on that. And I, I don't want to get on the soapbox or lecture, but you know, I, I'm not a guy with a million dollars in the bank. I'm not a guy with $100,000 in reserves or even $20,000 or, or five or or $1,000 in reserves right now. You know, we, we still live uh, paycheck to paycheck for the most part. Uh, what I found to be, quote-unquote, my success has been that uh, we're not in debt to our eyeballs. Uh, mm -hmm. We lease our house. We don't own our house right now, but we haven't had a car payment in several years. We don't have a lot of credit card debt. The last credit card that we used was to pay property taxes. So we don't sit on a lot of debt. We manage our money very frequently. We do live paycheck to paycheck, and those are, are fairly small paychecks by comparison. But for that reason, I don't teach on money. Mm -hmm. Here's what I do teach on. The relationship between us and our spiritual world Uh, is mind-boggling for some. And one of the challenges that I see in the church is a uh, browbeaten into defeatism uh, relationship to money. Yeah. And it's for the purpose that the enemy wants the church to be broke because when the church has money, the church has power. Right. That's it, exactly. Yeah. So uh, here's the way my pastor said, one of the books that I highly recommend to anybody is called The Blessed Life uh, by uh, Robert Morris. 
And he says, understand that God didn't bless the children of Israel in order to take from everybody else. Instead, what it says is, I will bless you to be a blessing. There you go. I want you to learn the power of stewardship so that I can entrust you with more and 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 entrust you with more. And that stewardship may be wisdom, it may be knowledge, it may be understanding, it may be financial power, it may be influence, it may be relationships, but all of those areas have to be stewarded in the same way. And the more you're diligent with what you have, it influence. The more you're diligent with what you have and relational equity, the more you're diligent in what you have with spiritual understanding, the more you're diligent in what you have with your giftings and your callings and your talents, the more of them God will give you, the more expansive they will become. Now, for some people, that immediately means great amounts of wealth because what they've been given is the ability to manage money, incoming and outgoing money. They've been able to, or they've been gifted with the ability to make money multiply itself. Yeah. Right. That's a discipline that I'm learning. It's not a gift that I was given, and I'm okay with that because the gift that I have been given is communication, and there are people who will pay me to communicate, to teach, to train, to coach, and that becomes my source of, of substance, if you will, in the form of taking care of my obligations on this earth. But God is still Jaira. Hmm. And that balance, I think, is where the church is at our time. There's a, a very common phrase that has a scriptural origin, but the secular world has used it like a billy club in the church. And that is, judge not, lest you be judged. Yeah. And I've had people attack comments of mine on Facebook, and they immediately want to classify me, deify, you know, demonize me, put me in a category, you're just like so-and-so, or you must believe so-and-so, or, or how could you believe such-and-such and call yourself a Christian? And I'm yeah. like, well, I don't know. I don't call myself a Toyota either, but <laughs> what exactly is your point? Mm-hmm. Because it, the label you're using Christian has absolutely nothing to do with what you're accusing me of doing or not doing. And, and so what you're telling me is that you're ignorant, and by that I mean uninformed of, what a Christian is, what a Christian means, what it means to be called a Christian. We had a guy stand up in one of our classes at church, and he just said straight out, I am both a member of this church and I'm a Muslim. And I went, uh, no, what? that's like saying I'm both a giraffe and a rabbit. You have to be one or the other because when you sign the membership documentation that says, I want to be a member of this church, you said, I am aligning myself with the Lordship of Jesus Christ and with the principles and eldership of this church. And that precludes Allah as your God or Muhammad as your prophet. Jesus as Lord doesn't allow Muhammad to be prophet. Yeah. It's an exclusive. You have to choose. Yeah, exactly. And I'm, I'm totally okay. I'm totally okay with whichever one that is. But it's not possible to be both any more than it's possible to be lava and ice. Yeah. They're simply incompatible. I'm okay with either one, and I'm not judging you. I'm just saying. But see, the outside the church, the Billy Club of, uh, well, he only does that to get a whole lot of money for his church. And, of course, there are abuses. There are pastors who have jets, and, and nobody can justify why. Then there are people who have jets, and you're like, if you had any idea how many times I fly and how many hours I spend going through security or getting on and off of an airplane, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, as opposed to simply doing the job that I'm supposed to be doing, you would understand why having a jet is actually a means of efficiency, not mm. a means of celebrity. Exactly. And that is a whole that is a whole different thing, and some people still struggle with that. Yeah, it's, it's um, just so, efficiency. So, and and here's, who, here's who they are. They're the same people who are hanging out with the five people who have a victim mentality and they're broke. 
And their reason they're broke is because they still want to blame everybody else for the lack of success. They don't want to believe that action trumps everything. If you don't like where you're at, do something about it. Stop blaming everybody else. Take responsibility for what you have. And understand that the authority to change your life is married to the responsibility you take of your life. You cannot have authority and power in your life. Therefore, you cannot have independence and freedom in your life if you don't have responsibility in your life. So take responsibility. It comes with authority and power. Now you can do something about it. Mm-hmm. If you don't, then you will always be a victim and blame somebody else for your failure. Absolutely. And uh, I've noticed, and I don't know if you would agree, but some churches, some Christians, some believers actually glorify themselves in having a poverty mindset. They think it makes them more godly. I've heard uh, two different teachings, and I would love to speak with a deeper theologian myself to ask this question, but I heard one guy who I respect a lot in his theology and his, his uh, dissection of Scripture in multiple languages, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, uh, who said, you know, when Jesus said the phrase, the foxes have a place to lay their head." It was a political inference. Hmm. It wasn't about a creature. It was about a person. He did call Herod a fox. Yes, he did. And it was also an inference to both Herod and Pontius Pilate, who a lot of people called the old gray fox. And so those two inferences were about political positioning and about power. And he's like, look, these guys say that they're in control of everything. Just juxtapose that comment with, when Pontius Pilate said, don't you understand I have the power, the authority to crucify you or set you free? And he goes, yeah, whatever. You don't have any authority except what my daddy gave you. There you go. You misunderstand where your power comes from. Caesar didn't give it to you. My daddy did. You ain't got nothing. My <laughs> yeah. daddy didn't give to you. Exactly. <laughs> so bring it on with your authority already. It basically is what he's saying. But Pontius Pilate knew exactly what he was saying when he said that. Because his next comment was, I don't find he's good. I don't find anything wrong with him. His wife said, let the man go. You have no idea what you're getting yourself into. But see, that position of authority, the authorities recognized. And when Jesus made the comment, the foxes have a place to lay their head. I don't have a place to lay my head. What was he talking about? He was talking about a current recognized position of rulership. Yeah. Heard people teach on the radio that when they said that, Jesus was declaring to be homeless. Jesus was not homeless. His father was a carpenter. Yeah. His father was a tradesman. He was raised as a tradesman, a highly respected, educated, rabbinical tradesman, a man who had a job, who did work, who earned money, and still found time to go to school full time. There you go. And and do you think that passage could also be understood in the sense when Jesus was saying that, um, in a sense that he was saying, my work is never done. I don't have time to lay down my head anywhere. I have a lot of work ahead of me. Well, absolutely. I, I mean, there are a multiplicity of meanings to it, but I think to, to, to as you said, to deify or to, to glorify the idea of living in poverty. Now, I believe there are some, in the same way that Paul said, if you've been called to celibacy, celebrate it. I yeah. believe there are some like Mother Teresa who said, "Yeah, I got no good. I, I got no good relationship, nor do I have any great need yeah. for earthly gain. I, if, if I live and die here and never have a penny, I don't care. I've got too much work to do to worry about bank accounts." There you go. Right. That's fine. Yeah. On the other hand, there were a whole lot of people that God called to put money in the coffers for her to do the work she did. Yes, a whole lot. There, there is no tree that will ever grow a leaf 
lets the roots be buried in deep soil. And someone has to tend that soil. Someone has to be able to feed the nutrients into those roots. And if there are no roots, there will be no fruits. Yeah. But the roots of the tree are the invisible, unseen, deep dive. And there are a whole lot of people that I know, people who have given me money for mission trips that I've gone on, people who slide me money and they're like, I don't know why I'm giving it to you. God just told me that I need to give it. I'm like, I don't have... I'm not even a 501c3 nonprofit. I don't even know why you would give, I, I can't give you a receipt or anything. I, I don't care. I just, I know you're up to something and I want to be a part of it. And God told me to give you this. And I'm like, uh, okay. Wow. I mean, I, I'll take it. I got bills to pay. It, it's awesome. And I got coaching clients that I help to build their churches or their nonprofits who don't pay me, you know, what my regular billing rate is. And they're like, okay, well then pay, pay somebody's bill with that. Somebody whose outstanding invoice hasn't been paid, use it to pay that. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's right. awesome. Okay. Uh, but see, that, that I think, when, when I was, when we fought Wells Fargo and we lost our house in 2012 after uh, a 12-month-long battle, they tried to foreclose on a, on a we had refined, and they closed on the old note, not the new one. And we're like, but we're current on our new note. We refinanced. We're current on that. We've never missed a payment. They're like, yeah, we're not foreclosing on that. We're foreclosing on the other one. I'm like, but that note's not attached to a house anymore because we refinanced it. And they still won and wiped out our savings, destroyed our credit, took our house, left us homeless and broke Wow! in 2012. And I'm like, this isn't right. We hired an attorney. She said, you're right. But there are over a quarter of a million other people suing them for the same thing. Oh, yeah. Uh, And in the end, my sister ended up in the same lawsuit. She lost her house, lost her credit, lost tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees. And the end result was that she had a $700 payout. Didn't fix her credit, didn't didn't give the foreclosure back, nothing like I'm like, are you kidding me? So we didn't fight, we lost our we lost everything and, and had to start all over again. And so we're rebuilding our credit and we're rebuilding our savings and we're rebuilding our cash flow. Uh, and yet there's no break in the kind of work that God has called us to do. There's no uh, step back and wait. No, you don't you don't retire from the side. kingdom. <laughs> exactly. And, and so yeah, there's work to be done and there, there's things to do. But I think it's I think it's the secular world who would judge you for, you know, what kind of clothes did you wear to church today? They judge you for what kind of car did you drive today? They, they judge you for, you know, <clears throat> what kind of relationships do you have and, and where do you work? And you call yourself some kind of big Christian and, and yet you do X, Y, Z. And and I, I look at it and I go, well, there's nothing in the Bible that says I can't do that. You know, Paul says I can do anything I want to. Some of those are going to be to my benefit and some are not. I should choose based on that logic. But, you know, it's not like there's a, a spiritual moral law against bacon if you're a Christian. Yeah. Jewish culture there is, Muslim culture there is, Christian culture there's not a law against bacon. So, and, and I think those are, are pretty, those are pretty indicative of the world's relationship to Christianity with a lot of hostility. And mm-hmm. because of that, we've been beaten over the head to say, if you're financially successful, you can't call yourself a Christian because Christians are supposed to be willing to surrender everything for the kingdom. There you go. Yeah. In fact, to the extent that they'll say, if you're rich and you call yourself a Christian, you should be giving that to the poor. Hang on a minute. The first guy who was noted for saying that was Judas Iscariot. <laughs> eventually betrayed Christ. It's true. The first guy who said, mm-hmm. you've got all that value in that perfume. You should go sell that and give it to poor. And Jesus went, hang on. The poor are always going to be here. I am not. Yeah. Honor the king while the king is present. Amen. And, and I think that's that's a dichotomy even in the church today. There are some, even in the church, even in the pulpit, who feel like, like you said, if I sell a book and I make money off of it, you know, it, it took about an hour and a half 
after John Gray bought a, a new car for his wife for her birthday. Money that didn't come from the church, money that had nothing to do with the church, money that had nothing to do with anything other than his book sales from before he took the job at the church. A book that he had written finally took off, became a bestseller, a whole lot of royalties came in, he got a, a signing contract from the next book that he was working on, and he used the money to buy his wife a very nice car. And it took about 15 minutes for the Twitterverse to utterly destroy, the man was in tears in the pulpit saying, I'm sorry, I've given the car back, I didn't realize the impact that it had. He was apologizing really? for being judged wow. by stupid, lazy people who don't want to work. Oh. He took his wife's gift away and gave it back to the dealership to make amends with a bunch of people who don't want to work, who felt like, if you're going to buy her that expensive car, why didn't you pay off mine? I'm like, why didn't you get off your couch and go pay for your own car? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If you're not able, if you're not able, that's different. If you're not willing, mm -hmm. that's not my fault. So my success does not mean your failure. Your failure is your fault. Your failure is your responsibility which is powerful because that means you now have authority you didn't have five minutes ago. There you go. Take responsibility, apply that authority, and get busy. Exactly, and that's so powerful what you just said. I've spoken to to people, you know, that have made mistakes with money and um, for various reasons, you know, are living in the basement of some Christian's home and, you know, basically not able to, you know, get off their couch and, and make something of themselves and move forward. And it's like... All they can look at is, you know, either the bad decision they made or something happened to them. And I think that's very powerful, like just your testimony of what happened to you in 2012. And yet you didn't stay there and say, oh, well, you know, life is over. I guess that's that was God's will. Now I'm broke and I'm just, you know, not going to move forward. A lot of people just stay stuck there and think it's God's will for them to stay stuck there instead of moving forward yeah. and having that strong mindset to, to take action and to, to become something for Christ. I remember the day that I was praying about it and I was praying as early as I knew how. God, stop Wells Fargo from this foreclosure. Get, give us back our house. Let us, let us have our freedom. Let us move on with this. And uh, I was reminded of, I believe it was King Hezekiah when the uh, so they, it wasn't the Ammonites, it was the other army, I'll remember in a minute, were coming to attack. And basically, uh, the, the prophet said to the king, he said, listen, uh, if God wants them to overrun you, you don't have the power to stop them. But if God wants to stop them, you don't even have to fight. Hmm. And yeah. I felt like the Holy Spirit said the same thing to me. He said, look, if I want you in that house. Wells Fargo is not big enough to throw you out. Amen. Amen. But if I want you out of that house, fighting is futile. Mm. Yeah. Exactly. And I said, okay. And it was kind of that, and I, I hate to compare by magnitude, but it was, it was that moment that Jesus had in the garden when he said, look, this is not what I want. This is not what I want. But whatever it is you want. I'll surrender to that. And there's, there's been such an evolution in my life. I mean, it, it was 2010, January the 9th of 2010, that four ten in the morning, the Holy Spirit would be up and he said, uh, you prepare the message and I'll prepare the platform. By October of that year, by August of that year, I had joined Toastmasters, uh, been coaching a Dale Carnegie program, wrote the vision for my life, started the book, Live a More Excellent Life. 
by July of the next year, I finished that book, joined the John Maxwell team, competed in the World Championship for public speaking. All of that happened in about 12 months in February of 2012. All of that was while we were fighting Wells Fargo. Wow. Wow. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and became homeless and lived in somebody else's house in the country, a trailer house, 90 miles from our church, 90 miles from our marketplace. We lived there for, for two years. Uh, by God's grace, she said, uh, just take care of the house until I can sell it. She was able to sell it. She didn't charge us any rent. I still feel like we need to write her a check for 20 grand, but I'll have 20 grand to give her a check for. But she allowed, to, allowed us to live in her house. She was an incredible blessing to us. <clears throat> We had nothing. We couldn't finance a loaf of bread. We didn't have the cash flow to rent an apartment. We couldn't get the credit to do it. I mean, mm-hmm. and we were devastated financially by that decision. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't have a full-time job. My wife hadn't worked outside the home because we'd always homeschool. And so she took a temporary job. Now she's been at Daystar for uh, going on six years. And it was in that move, in that transition, that all of those things began to shift. And, and God began to move us into a deeper place. But I, I had an earlier interview, and, and the guy said, you know, how do you compare uh, your journey to uh, other people's journey? Because yours seems pretty intense. And I say, you know what? I was an Air Force firefighter, which means my basic training was day camp. <laughs> Honestly, but I think the average couch potato high school student could make it through Air Force basic training. Not real complicated stuff. Not a whole lot of hand-to-hand combat. Not a whole lot of physical agility required, et cetera, et cetera. But based on the way the Air Force fights a battle from 30,000 feet, the training was adequate. Okay. On the other hand, the Navy SEALs, the Air Force uh, paratroopers, the, the Green Berets, uh, those guys, hand-to-hand combat, death on the line every minute, they're trained to fight differently. And from a spiritual warfare standpoint, what God's called me to is a whole lot more like Navy SEAL combat than it is like Air Force combat. We get right down in the grip with those guys. When I sit down with a pastor and I say, you have any understanding of what the theory of entanglement for quantum physics has to do with your largest tither in your church and how pornography will destroy his ability to be the largest tither in your church because the theory of entanglement is permanent and timeless. Mm. And if you can't understand that, then you're going to watch your church crumble because people do what people see. Mm. And then you sit there with their mouth open and they're like, okay, give me 20 minutes and explain your question. Because you use words in your question that I understand. Here's what I mean. Over the last seven years, God has put me emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, and educationally through a Navy SEAL level of training. The people that I've been around, the level of intensity, the relationships that God has put me in, the, the people that drive me to ask the questions that I ask are not the average Joe. And so the, the questions that I ask and the answers that I ask empower me to step alongside men who have degrees in theology. When I travel to the Congo, I'm the only one in the group who doesn't hold multiple PhDs. When we come back, they're like, my head is spinning. You're making me think too much. Calm down. <laughs> <laughs> come on, baby. Come on. Man up. You know, get, in, get in this. Yeah. Let's really get into God's Word. Put your and thinking so, caps on. Absolutely. One of my friends, he, he was the professor of theology at Princeton, the professor of theology at Harvard, the founder of the School of Theology for the University of Kinshasa for the Presbyterian Church in the Congo. He pastored the church for 15 years, and what used to be his parsonage is now the largest labor and delivery hospital in Kinshasa. And when we travel together, we'll sit and have conversations, and he's like, I just need to take notes and create research documents for about half of what you say. <laughs> <laughs> we could get, get grants 
around your ideas. I'm like, I'm still trying to work these out in my head. He said, that's my point. But there are doctoral theses that could be written around this. Yeah. And here's my challenge when it comes to the body of Christ. It's become so easy to show up on Sunday and listen to a service yeah. and never ask the question, well, what do I do with that? How am I supposed to let that transform me? What, what does that empower me to do? But see, it's the, it's the guys who finish the Navy SEAL that, you know, this, is, this sounds violent and, and crazy, but just to give you a quick illustration, I did some close quarter combat training with the Dallas SWAT team with some of the guys on that team because I had a pastor uh, from a couple of churches back. That was his thing. And so he was studying for his black belt. I joined him, became part of the crew, and we would fight and tumble on a regular basis. And one of the little tricks that I learned was you take one of these guys who's trained in, in close to close quarter combat, hand-to-hand combat. I don't care if you pull a knife on him, a gun on him, a short gun or a long gun on him. If you get too close, all you've done is armed him. Yeah. So you can pull a gun and hold it the wrong way, and he knows how to take it away from you. So you bringing your gun to a fist fight gives him a gun. <laughs> gives him a gun. And I'm like... So I watch these TV shows and I see these, you know, the gangbangers and he pulls the gun out and he shoves it up against the back of the guy's head. And I'm like, that was a mistake. I mean, you got close enough to touch him. Now he knows where it's at. Exactly. If you're three inches away, he didn't know if you're three inches or 18 inches. But when you touched him with that gun, you told him where it is. Now he's going to take it from you. Mm. And every time they turn around, take it, I just laugh. And I think, you know, see, all right, so here's the truth. The enemy can't see the future, but the enemy can read the past. And he reads those patterns. Mm-hmm. And it's because Christians haven't learned the modes of spiritual self-defense. They haven't learned what the theory of entanglement looks like when you take that quantum physics and move it into the Bible. They don't understand that we have power of an unseen nature because we have a God who is an unseen God. We have a God who moves in neutrinos. You know, those atoms smaller than atoms that carry more energy than the sun. Okay. Right. That is our God. Yeah. When our God says, speak, and it will be, mm. it's because he's spoken, and it was, and still is, and always will be. And it's not a flippant instruction. It's an I dare you. Mm. And, and it's and a powerful because, thing. Because we're ignorant of the fact, we think, oh my gosh, he has a gun, Jack Canfield, another one of the guys, probably 60-40, I agree with what he says, yeah. but I haven't, my name is in his book, uh, The Success Principles, because he took my endorsement and put it in the front of the book. So I say, I, I, my name is Jack, in Jack Canfield's book, he mentions me, but that's not really the case. But in his book, he tells a story about two police officers who show up at a domestic violence scene, and the guy who's beating his wife pulls a gun and shoots both officers. One is shot in the hand, the other is shot in the shoulder. Which one died? The one shot in the hand? The one shot in the hand. Because she was thoroughly convinced, I've been shot, that means I must die. And so her mindset caused her body to force itself into death. Mm. Wow. The one who was shot in the shoulder said, flesh wound, I'm moving on. Yeah. And mm. see, when, when you're trained in close quarter combat, when you train as a Navy SEAL, you're trained to, if it hasn't already stopped me, it's not going to. That's a choice. Mm-hmm. And that's why you see those guys high on PCP and all this stuff. Their brain-body connection is totally disconnected. Mm-hmm. A Navy SEAL, a combat soldier, these guys are trained to say, 
If it hasn't already stopped me, I won't let it. That's a choice. They may still be connected, but they're intentionally blocking that pain out and rocking on. Mm. They're still coming. And in the church, we've been convinced if the enemy threw something at us, yeah. that fiery dart means the war is over. Yeah. Rather yeah. than take up our shield of faith and charge into it. We don't have many believers who are willing to charge the gates of hell with a squirt gun because we don't have believers who are willing to charge the gates of hell. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I had a vision 20 years ago. In my vision, I see the church, little white chapel church, and off about 100 yards away, I see the gates of hell. And the saints inside the little church, they bow their heads and they pray 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 and they they look up and there's the gates of hell 50 yards away and they think, we're making progress. And they pray and they pray and they pray and the gates of hell are 25 yards away and they bow their heads and they pray and they pray and they pray and then Suddenly my mind zooms out and outside the church I see the gates of hell and the demons are all hiding behind it like the horse behind the cactus. They're hiding behind the gates of hell and they got it on dollies. And every time the saints bow their heads to pray, the demons jack the gates of hell up on the on the dollies and they charge the church. Hmm. And the misunderstanding that the gates of hell will not prevail against it does not mean that we will sit still until they attack and then we'll survive. <laughs> no, it's the opposite. <laughs> We're supposed to smash those we things to smithereens. <laughs>
that precedes the 413. Everybody knows 413. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Mm-hmm. The question I always ask is how? And mm-hmm. so here's what he says. Exactly. physics. Think on these things which are holy and true and pure and just. If you put your mind right there, everything else is possible. Absolutely. If you will think on the things that are holy and pure and true and just and praiseworthy, then you will be thinking like the God who spoke in the mountain moved. Yeah. Like the God who spoke to the storm. See, there's there's two different kinds of water. And the two different kinds of water are only differentiated by the direction of the spinning of the molecules of hydrogen in the compound of H2O. Most yeah. people don't know that. No, explain the it. The world can measure the difference between the two. Here's a fascinating thing. Water is a liquid. Everyone knows that. How did Jesus walk on it? Jesus has command of the molecules. I- I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a minute, water, while I'm here, you're solid. Get mm. over it. Wow. Okay. Storm, okay. shut up. I got things to do. Quantum physics talks about parallel universes and time travel and the ability to be in more than one place at a time. What about Philip? How did Philip get from one place to speak to the eunuch? Yeah. How did, how did Jesus walk across the storm? He gets to the boat. Now, the, the word says they were all night trying to get across the lake. It's only eight miles, folks. It's eight miles across the whole lake. They made it halfway all night. And in the middle of the night, Jesus comes walking out there on the same path that they've been rowing all night. Walks up to the boat. They freak out. They're like, oh, it's a ghost. He's like, no, it's me. (laughs) The word says, and suddenly they were at the other side. Now, they've been traveling all night to get halfway, and now suddenly Mm. they're on the other side. It's funny. I never noticed that part of the passage. I like that. That's powerful stuff. Yeah. How about this one? Jesus is traveling through the wilderness. The the centurion shows up, and he's like, uh, my daughter's sick. Uh, just say the word. Hang on a minute. Where did he get the idea that Jesus could just say a word? Right. What, what, what uh, teaching uh, preceded this incident that, that this man would go, just say the word. Jesus was like, well, take me to it. He's like, you don't have to do that. Yeah. I understand. I am a man under authority. Mm-hmm. I know authority when I see it. And right. Jesus said, your faith has made her whole. Hang on. Who's faith? Did Jesus make her whole? Or did his faith make her whole? It was actually his servant, if I remember correctly. I don't think it was his daughter. His servant, you're right. Yeah. Servant. So the servant is healed, and the, the, the people come and tell him, hey, he's better. Yeah. The servant's better. He's like, when? Here's what he didn't ask, how? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he said when, just to he make sure it was when. at the time he asked. And so did Jesus travel through time from one place to another and do the work and, you know, call the doctor and get a physician and, you know, do the cancer treatments and radiology and blah, 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 and then come back. <laughs> I love that. I love that story with the centurion. It's one of my Did favorite things. the universe ones. simply obey? Right. The answer is the universe simply obeyed. Yeah. Now, if we can get it through our minds that money is a tool in the hands of Jaira, who is provider, mm-hmm. and money, like mountains, like cancer, like the issue of blood, like the little girl who died while Jesus was on his way, they all answer to him. To his authority. Yeah, I love this passage. When we talk about the authority of, of the believer. Yeah. Jesus gets out of the boat on the aisle of the Garden of the Gatherings. He gets out of the boat. The demons come running to him. They're like, what do you have to do with us? This is the only time in Scripture that Jesus didn't have exactly the same message for the demons of hell. 
every other demonic encounter that Jesus had, he said two things, shut up, get out. This is not a debate. We're not having a conversation. There's no theology lesson here. There's no ongoing discipleship training because you can't disciple a demon. Get out. I'm sorry, I'm not asking again. Mm -hmm. Shut up. Get out. End of conversation. At this moment, he says, what's your name? And they say, we're legion for we're many. But it's not yet our time. He's like, I know. They're like, okay, let's go to the pigs. He's like, fine, go on the pigs. Destroy the culture. I don't care. <laughs> but, but that one's mine. That one's mine. I love the t-shirt I saw the other day in our bookstore at church. It said, uh, to leave the 99 in search of the one seems nuts unless you're the one. Unless you're the one. Yeah. Amen to that. Uh, we'd like to ask you another question concerning, uh, you mentioned the quantum physics. Uh, when did you encounter that that uh, understanding of quantum physics and how did it affect you personally? So this is a really strange story. I was listening to Dr. Caroline Leaf, who is a 30-year veteran neuroscientist and a, a, a biblical scholar as well. Yeah, we know her. And Caroline Leaf said... Um, in the quantum physics world, there's a thing called entanglement. And I was working on my book on uh, overcoming addiction at the time that I, was, that I heard this. And it really started to mess with my head because this quantum physics theory of entanglement, as it relates to prayer, is enormous. And I think it's something the body of Christ in general misses. It by itself is a whole line of teaching that I've never heard anybody teach on. But when you put into the application of, of spiritual warfare, man, it's enormous. Okay. Here's what she said. There was a demonstration done in the 1920s in the field of psychology and quantum physics, and here's the question they asked. The impact of positive energy, I'm looking at the cover of Laurel Langmire's book, Yes, Energy. The entire law of attraction is built on, on energy, built on do you have positive energy, meaning are you positively resonating the things going on in your life, or are you negative, negatively resonating? Uh, Paul Martinelli said it on a call two weeks ago. He said, listen, if you're in that rhythm of life, and life is up, and life is great, and life is awesome, and everything is going your way, put as much energy into that as you can. But when mm. you're on the downhill slide, don't give it any energy. Because mm. if you pour energy into it, you're creating a problem. Yeah. You're giving power to the negativity. Don't do that. Giving positive power to negative events is no different than giving negative energy. Uh, all you're doing is amplifying. It's like if I turn up my sound system when I've got a bad sound coming through versus a good sound coming through, it's still amplified. It doesn't matter which one. Um, so Caroline Lee says in this experiment, then in the 1920s, they took vials of DNA and they handed them to two control groups. Control group A took the vials of DNA, put them in their hands, positive, positive thoughts. Positive thoughts. Just think good things about whoever's DNA is in that vial. You don't know them. You don't know anything about them, but just think positive thoughts. And so they opened their hands at the end of whatever test period, and the ones that they had been thinking positive thoughts about, all that DNA had begun to express itself. It was growing. It was lively. It was invived. It was reproducing. And wow. the negative ones were dying. Wow. I thought, well, that's fascinating. But what if it's just, you know, the, the amount of energy in that person's hand, maybe they like a warm hand, maybe they're a cold hand, maybe it's their heart rate, maybe their blood pressure, whatever. So let's just trade. So same control groups, opposite uh, test subjects. Okay. They did exactly the same thing. They got exactly the same results. Those people putting positive energy into the DNA is even the one that had begun to die is beginning now to express itself. Yeah. Uh, and the ones that had be 
begun to express themselves and multiply were now beginning to die. And they thought, again, it's got to be about the energy. So they tested it by moving them 20 miles away from each other. Not the negative and positive people, the positive people and the DNA they were influencing. I've heard the same uh, experiment run with plants where people would speak positive things to plants and the other group would speak negative things to plants and the same thing happened. The plants that were spoken negatively of uh, withered and died. Okay, so now what happens when you take that vial of DNA and you move it 20 miles away? Because now we have a time and space problem, right? Yeah. How long before I think a positive thought does it get to a DNA that I can't see? I don't even know where you put it. Yeah, that's interesting, yeah. The results were exactly the same. Wow. Really? Wow. And so the quantum physics theory of entanglement says any two particles who have once been in a relationship never cease to be in a relationship. And whatever stance, state, position one takes on, the other will also begin to take on. Now let's take that for a moment back to our concept of prayer, number one. Can we pray for people we can't see? Well, Jesus prayed for the servant. Jesus spoke to the universe on behalf of the servant. And because of the faith and the authority of Christ, what he willed was done at a distance, through walls, without regard for time. However, it was at exactly the same time that he spoke it. So that, that spoken word in the universe doesn't know whether it's two miles, 2,000 miles, 200,000 miles, or two light years away. So how would you explain the words of Jesus, healing the servant, and the correlation with the faith of the centurion? How did his faith work with the words? Okay, so think about it this way. Um, The scripture says you have not because you ask not. Mm -hmm. But then it also goes on to say, and when you ask, you ask him this. Let's go one step further than that. Uh, let's lay side to side, and I'm, I'm answering your question, I promise. I'm just laying a foundation to set it on. Sure. Uh, Paul said, Paul Martinelli said, don't let your energy amplification amplify the negative, let it amplify the positive. Mm-hmm. Basically, turn off the amplifier when life is negative. Yeah. Right. Turn yeah. off the amplifier when life is positive. We call that gratitude. We call that appreciation. We call that working in the momentum of the positive, right? Amen. Keep your energy there. Keep your heart there. Keep your thoughts there. Keep your words there. Wait a minute. Think on these things which are holy and true and pure and just. Keep yeah. your energy in a positive, upward, Christ-like movement. Right. And then in James, it says, a double-minded man shouldn't expect anything. You have not because you ask not, because when you ask, you ask in this, i.e., not according to God's will, not in faith. Mm-hmm. Hebrews 11, 1 through 6, and that, that whole hall of faith, one of the things he says is, if you expect anything from God, you first must believe he is. Right. That by itself is an enormous statement that a lot of people skip right past. Because when you ask, he is, you now have to ask, he is what? Well, he is good. He is father. He is infinite, uh, omnipotent. Yeah. He is omniscient. He's king. He's ruler. He's Lord. He's not asking you. This is not a democracy. You don't get a vote. Right. And when you can put all that in context and go, holy, pure, righteous, true, praiseworthy. Yep. I'm going to keep my thoughts right there. I'm going to take every other captive thought and beat it into submission until it obeys Christ. Now let's keep keep building on this. First Corinthians, he says, nobody knows the mind of God. 
like the spirit of God. No one knows the mind of a man, like the spirit of that man. Now, a lot of people stop right there and they go back to that old passage in Isaiah and say, that's right, God's ways are higher than our ways, we'll never understand him. That's not what Paul said. That's Paul goes one step further. He said, however, comma, we have in us the spirit of the living God, the spirit of Christ. <clears throat> Nothing is hidden from us. Mm-hmm. We understand all mysteries. We have the ability to think God's thoughts. Amen. If that's the case, think on these things which are holy and true and pure and just. I can do all things through Christ, whose mind and thoughts are the same as mine, strengthens me. I can ask, and what I want will happen, not because I want it, but because it's in line with what Christ wants. When what I want for the universe is what God wants for the universe, the universe has to shut up and do what I tell it to. Mm. Yeah, I've never seen anybody, and, and this was my biggest revelation for the law of attraction. This is a hard lesson for me. The same pastor that I used to do close quarter combat with, I called him one day when I was reading Jack Canfield's book, The Success Principles. And as I'm reading this book, and it talks about how he had a five-year party, and they planned all these things out, and they envisioned it, and et cetera, et cetera. And it, he talks about the law of attraction just straight up. And I called my pastor at the time, and I said, why is it Christians can't use the law of attraction? His only answer was, that's witchcraft. Stay away from it. Yeah, that's what I used to believe, too. But does it work? Yeah. Yeah, I'm, I'm like, but does it work? He's like, well, it's witchcraft. Stay away from it. And I'm like, see, that sounds like an ignorance block to me. Yeah. yeah. It doesn't sound like here's why and here's how. And so I, I continued to dig into that, and, and I asked the Holy Spirit, why can't Christians use the law of attraction? And I don't know about you, but I have this really weird relationship with the Holy Spirit. He kind of, you know, bats me around like an older teenage brother sometimes. And <laughs> let me ask you a question. And I'm like, okay, fine. He said, so if a Baptist and a Buddhist are in an airplane, and I'm like, is this a bar joke? <laughs> he said, a Baptist and Buddhist are in an airplane, and we both jump out. Who hits the ground first? I'm like, well, in a perfect environment, say, Sam the heaviest man. <laughs> 32 feet per second, they hit it same time he said exactly i'm like okay that's not funny (laughs) write this down i said okay he said the truth isn't always true and i wrote it down and i looked at it and i said but the alpha the vega the beginning and the end always the same no daughter said will be removed from this word i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father but by me that statement doesn't resonate he said, well, what you wrote down is not what I said. I said, you said the truth isn't always true. He said, yeah, that's what I said. And I said, well, that was what I wrote down. He said, write it again. I said, fine. So I start writing. The truth is and always true. He said, stop. You need a pause. I said, the truth is, he said, space. It's not N-T, it's I-N. And that's not A-L-W-A-Y-S, it's A-L-W-A-Y-S. True. That changes everything. Because hmm. here's what he said. Gravity doesn't check your politics card at the door. Gravity doesn't ask, what religion are you? I'm sorry, hang on, only Methodists go up. There you go. Right. It doesn't do that. No. It's a law. It's a law. It's a law. <laughs> and so the law doesn't negotiate with your philosophy, your worldview, your opinion, your education, your degree. It doesn't care. I got to interrupt you. This is so funny because I was I was trying to 
figure it out myself. I was having those struggles and, and, and coming from an evangelical background, I used to have maybe 10, 15 years ago, those thoughts that, oh, the law of attraction, that's of, uh, that's of the devil, blah, blah, blah. And, but when, when I started really looking into it, uh, I started listening to all kinds of teachings and, 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 and audiobooks on it and stuff. And then I came home one night and I came in the kitchen. Remember that, Liz? Yeah. And I just barged in the kitchen. I looked at Liz. I said, it's a law. It's a law. Because I had figured it out. I had finally figured it out. And I was all excited. My wife was looking at me like, he's lost his mind again. That's it. He's gone cuckoo again. And I was like, Liz, it's a law. Yeah. Well, and I think that the challenge is in the same way that the, the gates of hell have lied to the church about her power. The gates of hell lied to the church about her authority. The gates of hell have lied to her church, to the church about her ability to gain wealth and to influence. God blessed us to be a blessing. Amen. But there's a reason the enemy doesn't want Christians to be wealthy. Because we're going to give it back. Because <laughs> we're generous. <laughs> worse than that. Worse than that. Worse than that. They kill poverty. Amen. Yeah. Christians who are worthy, that are wealthy, fight abortion. There you go. Christians who are wealthy adopt young children. Yeah. Christians who are wealthy give to educate, give to empower, and they fight the social agenda of the gates of hell. There they you fight go. one world government. They fight one world religions. They fight against things that the enemy wants in place. Right. So Amen. Abortion is a suicide culture. It's about destroying in the same way that Herod wanted to destroy in order to, to prevent the king. Yeah. So when we stack all of these things together and we realize that God's thoughts are a resonance and the greatest gift God gave humankind in his image is imagination. I remember making this statement. Uh, this is going to sound so far off. I'll marry them back together, I promise. I went deer hunting with a buddy of mine. When we went deer hunting, I left my truck uh, at a particular little, you know, convenience store, and we went off in the woods. And so when we're coming back, we're coming back to my truck, and we pull up, and my wife was supposed to meet us, et cetera, et cetera. And we pull up, and the door to my truck is open, and there's someone getting stuff out of my truck. But my wife and I have been married six or seven years at that point, and I pull up, and the guy goes, isn't that your truck? And I said, well, that's my truck, but that's not my bus. He said, what are you talking about? I said, whoever's bending over in my driver's seat, that is not my wife's backside. I know her well enough to know that's not her. Okay. And it, it, it struck me that in that moment, there was a, a very brief glimpse that linked to the idea that my level of familiarity was corrupted. Mm. I know, and I know that's not it. And see, there's something in our scriptural relationship that, that sits there as well. Yeah. We have a lack of knowledge of the word, and so it's really easy to deceive. Well, let me stress that out just a little bit further. Because of my years of addiction to pornography, one of the things that I realized was, if I can envision it, I can make it happen. This was 20 years before I studied the concept of the law of attraction or even the scriptural principle of setting that thing before you, set your eyes on things above, because that's what's going to make them happen. Yeah. I, I didn't have any concept of that. All I knew was, if I imagined it enough detail in my fantasy, that I could cause it to happen in my life. Why? Because my mind would actually work through all the details. So this woman was a friend of my wife from college. I didn't know her, never met her, never seen her before, but she was stunningly beautiful. The kind of beautiful that in my addiction, 
would have been a temptation for me to do something untoward. Mm-hmm. And so we got back to their house and we were having dinner with those with my wife's friend and not with the guy that I went deer hunting with. And so I went back in the back to clean up and I took a shower and I came out. And when I came out of the bathroom, I was fully dressed, but, but this other woman was in the bedroom. And so I went back in the bathroom and closed the door again and waited until I heard her go out of the bedroom. And then I cornered my wife a little later and I said, well, listen, um, I haven't done anything. I'm not, I don't want to do anything. I don't, it, that's not my place, but here's what I'm going to tell you right now. There's something in my spirit telling me that woman is vulnerable and seeking. Mm. And because she is, my addiction is going to cause us a problem because I'm attracted to her and her vulnerability is calling out to me like a magnet. Mm. Don't leave me in a room alone with her. And my wife's like, really? And I'm like, you just got to trust me on this. Do not leave us in a room alone together. Something bad is going to come from it. Well, when we left that night, we were driving home. She's like, you were right. She's had two or three affairs. Uh, she's been cheating on her husband. They're about to go through a divorce. I mean, just the list went on. And I was like, there was just something in my spirit. that just run, yeah. run, like Potiphar's wife, right? And so... The, the reality that I came to in that moment, though, and I talk about this in my book in Overcoming Addiction, is that that theory of entanglement, that these two things are related to each other, even at great distance, is part of the reason that a person who's caught up in sexuality and sexual addiction in porn trafficking, whether they are the subject behind the camera in a, a brothel in Amsterdam, or a dad hiding behind his laptop watching the Super Bowl in Dallas, Quantum physics says they're connected to each other. Jesus mm-hmm. said all the other sin that's outside your body, but this one, the sexual sin, that one gets deep on the inside. Is that what they call soul ties? Exactly what they call a soul tie. Yeah. And, and to take that deeper, it is the thing that disempowers men. Mm-hmm. No authority, no responsibility, no power. And so the ability to walk in the purity and the holiness, and, and I can't tell you how many times I walk in with a copy of my book in my hand and I approach the senior pastor and I'm like, hey, I'd love to talk to you about this. This is what I do. These are the resources that I offer. And they say, I have one guy straight up told me, 30 years I've been in ministry. I don't know a single man that's ever struggled with a porn addiction. What? And I thought, I thought to myself, that's like saying I live in L.A. I've never seen a car. <laughs> no. I've just never experienced it. So two weeks later, he calls me back. He's like, I don't get it. He said, I've never, in 30 years, I've never experienced this. Now there are four or five guys in my church asking for help. How does that happen? I said, well, it's called the reticular activating system, the law of attraction. Now that you're aware, you mm. be more aware. And so there's something in your awareness now that tells you that it's a reality that up to now you've ignored. Right. And and uh, Napoleon Hill in his, in his book, Think and Grow Rich, talks about... Um, it, I think he calls it sexual transmutation or he calls it a power and it's funny because you, you talked about how the devil loves to strip men of his power of their power and, it, and there is something to that in that, that sexual energy if it's not channeled the right way it strips us of our power well I can tell you this uh, a true life example I was in the Air Force Station in England I had taken a vow of celibacy after 20-something partners before I went into the Air Force. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm walking with God. I'm not doing this anymore. I, I don't want to be engaged in one of your relationships. I've turned down opportunities left and right, et cetera, et cetera. And so one day I'm walking through the fire station, and a guy had me paged 
to the main office. I get there, and the chief's like, I don't know why you're here. I'm like, you paged me. He's like, no, I didn't. That was a prank. So I'm walking back, and the guy who paged me is just laughing his full head off. Now, this is a guy that was known for being physically fit. He played on the football team for the U.S. Air Force, and the whole, and he's, a, he's a strong, strong dude. And something tripped in me. I just lost it. I was, I was ticked, and my rage took over. I tackled this guy, beautiful form tackle. Football coach would have been proud, but I hit <laughs> When we bounced off the side of the fire truck, it broke the door hinges on the fire truck. And faster than his hands could react, I took the water hose that was in his hand, I wrapped it around his neck three times and shoved it in his mouth. Wow. Like lightning, like a demon. It happened so fast. By the time I realized what I was doing, his life was in danger. Hmm. And his eyes were the size of footballs themselves. And he looked at me like, dude, you've got some serious pent-up sexual frustration you've got to release. That was the first time I'd ever heard of the concept of the transmutation of sexual power. There you go, yeah. It, it is that thing that, that robs men in the church. They release that sexual power through pornography, not through the relationships with their wife. They lose the intimacy with their wife, which means if prayer produces intimacy, lack of intimacy damages prayer. Mm-hmm. There's not a unified front in the, ha- in the house. The enemy has free reign to attack because the man who's supposed to be guarding the door, the strong man at the door, isn't at the door. There you He's go. He's hiding in the closet. Why? Because blame, shame, and guilt have a hold of him by the throat. Mm. And so he's not going to come up and, and wag his finger at anybody else. He doesn't have the authority to stand up and say, not in my house, because of what he's brought into his house. Mm. Hey, Lauren, we're reaching the end of the podcast. This has been mind-blowing. There's been there's so much information. I know our listeners are going to have to listen to it over and over again to grasp everything you spoke of. It's been a slice. I got to say, this was really, really awesome. But before we we, uh, we we end the podcast, we really want you to just anything that, that you want to tell our listeners, uh, if you want to talk about your website, your books, uh, your programs, your coaching programs, you go right ahead. It's it's your turn for the... Yeah. And yeah, and I want to know as well, um, any quantum physics books that you know are... Uh, it, for any of our listeners that have listened to what you've said, would like to know a little more, but from a trusted resource, uh, whether it be from Dr. Carolyn Leaf or somebody else, could you recommend a book that they can learn more about that as well? I don't know that Caroline Leaf has put any of her work on quantum physics in the books, but if you will, uh, if you will, let's see, what's the best way to say it? If you'll submit to the reality that quantum physics and the spirit world are not separate. Okay. Quantum physics is trying to explain the, the spirit world. Uh, I, I say it to, to young believers like this. When you build a new house, before the concrete of the house is laid, the trenches are dug for the plumbing. Which means if I've decided where the washer and dryer go and where the commode goes and where the kitchen sink goes, before the foundation is laid, then I also know that once the foundation is laid, the kitchen sink doesn't move. If we understand that before the firmament was put in place, before the foundations of the earth were laid, your name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life and there was already a spiritual war going on. Right. Then we must also understand that nothing in our physical world, nothing we can measure like money or time, has control or precedence over the spirit world. It's the other way around. We live our lives as though our physical world is 
was supreme and everything else is subservient. We try to look at quantum physics as a way to understand the misunderstandable. In fact, the best quote I've heard about quantum physics was a, a, a NASA scientist whose words were, if you think you've understood quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics. <laughs> no, that's good. I like that. <laughs> what, what, what we're really saying is, if you can understand the way that scripture talks about the relationship between the spirit and the soul and the body, which is a whole other conversation, powerful stuff. That quantum relationship is a spiritual relationship because what we try to define as quantum is actually God's world of the spirit. And yeah. all those things that are spiritual, the angels and the demons and the power of God and the power of man and the power of the Holy Spirit living in man, that ability to be everywhere all the time, that's the theory of entanglement. It's what says we will resonate, you and I, because we're believers in Christ. We can pass each other on the street having never seen each other's faces, and our spirits will resonate with each other because we are one in Christ. Mm-hmm. So that's my best advice on quantum physics is read your Bible. Yeah. When you're so curious about quantum physics, read it again. Okay. And it's really going to start messing with your head. Yeah, read it uh, with so new eyes. Yeah. Uh, I believe uh, more than anything else in our lives, it's the stories that transform us. Because stories have the power of confession. Stories are the power of repentance. They're the ability for us to say, I believe what Jesus said, and I'm going to say it just like he said it. It's the ability for us to say, I'm going to change my mind and not think like that anymore. I'm going to think like God thinks. Now, in order for us to think like God thinks, we've got to read God's word so that we know what God thinks. But when we allow ourselves to align with him to do that, it's powerful. And sometimes that's as simple as a 30 to 90 second story. That 30 to 90 second story that comes from our own life allows us to become a superhero. A lot of the coaching and training that I do has to do with leaders and communicators who want to be better public speakers. And in that arena, what I find is there are a lot of people who, there are right now, the, the affiliate market is all abuzz about three or four different get on stages, tell your story, here's why you need your story, blah, 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 here's how to craft your story. Uh, what I find often, uh, and I've experienced this at a couple of different places, I've spoken in audiences of four and audiences of 40,000. And oftentimes, I will find that the Holy Spirit has something to say to that girl on the seventh row, eight chairs in. And the rest of the audience right now are the 99. He's after that one. And what he needs is for me to be surrendered enough that he can look at the arsenal of stories in my life and go, this story is not about you, even though it's your story, you lived it, you experienced it, you have real raw emotion in it, you have the willingness to be transparent, you have the lesson to be learned from it, but this story, this story is for her. Mm. And I'm trying to be relevant to her so I can resonate with her, so I can reach her. And right now she's not listening to my voice, but she is listening to yours, so use it. And when we're willing to surrender ourselves as communicators to that level, then the stories that come from us authentically follow this pattern. Here's what I know to be an absolute fact. You will never, ever, 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 ever squeeze a pineapple hard enough to get ketchup out of it. Mm-hmm. It's not in there. No. So as a coach, I spend a lot less time preparing stories or speeches and a lot more time preparing speakers to be worthy of speaking. In that crafting, it's finding the power, it's finding the spiritual power, it's finding the purity, it's finding the place where you're aligned with God, where you're reaching the people he's called you to, where your passion is about the people that God's broken your heart for. Maybe they have a similar story, maybe they have a similar past, maybe their plight is something that breaks your heart. 
God's given you a gift to love them with. And if you're the one who shows up at little Johnny's birthday party, opens the bag and says, Johnny, open my first. Johnny, open my first. Johnny, open my first. God wants to use you like that. <laughs> if on the other hand, you're the one that shows up at Johnny's party and sits in the corner and goes, man, I love what's in this bag. I hope he doesn't want it so I can take it home for myself. And you're living in a scarcity mindset. Yeah. And you may one day write a speech that sells and stand on a stage and make a whole lot of money, but you'll take that money to the grave with you, having made very little impact in the world. God didn't necessarily call me for income, but he absolutely called me for influence and impact. Mm -hmm. And that's what I'm here for, and that's what I train, and that's what story power is all about. And speaking of training and what you, what you do, uh, would you tell our listeners where they can reach you? I love it. What they're saying is, I, I, I honor the impact you've made in my life, and I have a deeper question. But you can't pay for that. No, you can't. You cannot buy that level of influence. So my gift every day back to the community, back to people who want to grow, back to the people who are willing to develop, is the Leading Leaders Podcast, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube. Go to any platform and type in hashtag Leading Leaders Podcast, just those three words, and you're going to find it. It's, it's all over the place. That's my gift. My calling is to equip the saints for the work of the kingdom, and part of the way I do that is through leadership training. So on jlaurenorris.com, there are all those interviews from Meet the Messenger, Transfer and Grace, and Tell It Like It Is. There are online courses for better communication skills, better leadership skills. Uh, the 10 key elements of leadership development is one that I've trained for the national PTA and, and uh, local PTA boards. Attitude Hack has been trained at the University of Kinshasa uh, for the, the doctoral program in their psychology department and for the Congolese Parliament. Learn to Word Leadership and Learn to Word uh, Communication have been trained from uh, high school students all the way up to uh, government leaders as well. And all of those are online courses that you can take on a website. Some of them are 50 bucks, some are $97. I think the most expensive thing I'll offer right now is a six-hour workshop for 1000 bucks. And that's about story power. We talk about the okay. psychology and theology of story. JLaurenNorris.com. You can find all of it on there uh, eventually because it's all on that site. It's just kind of, there's a lot there, so it takes you a minute to find it. I like trying to find the black olives on your pizza. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you've also written a book called Live a More Excellent Life. Live a More Excellent Life is my work at Covert and Angel. Excuse me. Let me say that in English. Live a More Excellent Life was the first book that I wrote. Uh, that the Holy Spirit told me to write covert evangelism. My small group leader at my church read it while it was in manuscript form, and he's like, I thought you were writing a Christian book. There's not a single Bible verse in it. But the guy who edited the book came back to me and he said, you probably don't know this, but before I did what I do now, I was the senior editor for Christ of the Nations. And I have to tell you, while I can't find a Bible verse word for word in your book, it is more theologically sound than much of the stuff that came across my desk when I was on staff. That's awesome. Wow. And so it is a book that most people don't know it's Bible, 
they see the law of attraction, they see the quantum physics. Why? Because we see through the lens we're most familiar with. Yeah. But the book is for those who are starting out and starting over. I, I read all kinds of stuff, but I realized my mom would never read that stuff. And that broke mentality that had her scrubbing urinals in my middle school. Yeah. By the time I was in the Air Force, I said, there's got to be a better way to reach someone like her and give her hope for the future. And so that's what Live More Excellent Life is about. I give away to a lot of single moms, to a lot of veterans, to a lot of guys who are struggling with unemployment. Awesome. awesome. Hey, Jalen and Norris, thank you so much for adding so much value to our audience today. We thank you very much for being on the show. Thank you so much for your time. It was so valuable. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be asked to be a part of what you're doing. We really, really enjoyed it. And we know that our audience is going to love it and write to us and we'll share you all those comments. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you. For more free resources and content, make sure to visit thrivingonpurpose.com 